I cried a million tears the first time I got rejected at an acquisitions meeting and I sobbed and sobbed because I thought I'd done it. I thought that getting to acquisitions was a shoo-in. And I sobbed and I went, actually, the message that I take from this is not if I get published, it's when I get published. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast. So please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the Convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Rights for Women. Today we have a fabulous interview with guest host Meredith Jaffe talking to author, lecturer, sensitivity reader, and just an absolutely fascinating individual, Melanie Sayward. So stay tuned for that. And also wanted to tell you about a couple of other things coming up on the podcast. This week I recorded a fantastic kind of mini interview. It was quite lengthy for a mini interview, but anyway, with the wonderful Maya Linnell. So Maya has interviewed interviewed international best-selling romance author Paige Toon for the podcast. And as a follow-up to that, I chatted to Maya about her conversation with Paige and also about what Maya's up to and about her new release, Kookaburra Cottage, which, by the way, we will be doing a giveaway for in the coming weeks. So stay tuned to the Rights for Women social pages and the podcast itself to find out more about that. Always lovely to chat to Maya and the interview that she's done with Paige is wonderful. So that's something different coming up next week on Rights for Women. I also have in the pipeline an interview with Kel Woods, who is the author of After the Forest, very soon to be released, an amazing fantasy fairy tale continuation of the Hansel and Gretel story which just the imagination and the writing blew my mind when I read this and absolutely loved Kel's book so lining up a chat with her also going to be talking to Monique Mulligan about her book Wildflower which has had a really interesting evolution in terms of the publication of that book and the republication of it so I'll be chatting to Monique in a week or two about that and I'm also going to be talking to a previous guest of the podcast, but someone who is always just such a joy to speak to and has so many lovely ideas and thoughts on the writing craft, and that is Vanessa McCausland. I'm currently reading Vanessa's book, Dreaming in French. It's wonderful. It's just so beautifully written, and it's always a pleasure to chat to Vanessa, and I'll be doing that in a week or two as well and bringing that to you. So lots of things coming up on the podcast. I'm also in the process of catching up for anybody out there who is a Patreon supporter of the podcast. I'm in the process of catching up on the last few months of bonuses because as I have been off the air for a little while and things been happening. So I am definitely catching up on that. Keep an eye on your inboxes. And there's something new going to be coming to the Patreon program as well. So I have been doing a monthly or sometimes monthly for curly questions with writers who have already appeared on the podcast. I'm going to be mixing that up and instead of doing that, I'm going to be doing This Writing Life, a series where I talk to 
a whole bunch of authors, probably for about 20 minutes, half an hour, about the writing life, about what they're currently writing, glean maybe some information on their top writing tips, the ups and downs of the writing life. So that series, This Writing Life, will be about half an hour and will go out each month and will only be available to Patreon supporters. So if you'd like to find out about how you can support the podcast on Patreon, you can support the podcast for either somewhere between 3 and $5 a month, anything you like, really. <laughs> anything is helpful in terms of paying for the editing software and the distribution program for the podcast. That ends up being something like at $5 a month. If, you listen, if you're a regular listener and you're listening to every episode, it's probably about less than $1.50 per episode. And I know that the podcast goes out for free and I'm really happy to have it listened to far and wide by anybody who would like to listen. But if you would like to join the Patreon program, get that extra bonus, which also includes a monthly newsletter on what I'm listening to, reading and some links to great kind of podcasts, books, writing craft books, that sort of thing. That's all part of the Patreon program, which I am ramping up and also would love you to be part of that. So if you're a regular listener and you've been thinking about it for a while, pop onto the Rights for Women website, rightsforwomen.com, and there's a page there that will take you to the Patreon page where you can sign up. Huge shout-out to all my Patreon supporters. There's a lot of you who have been supporting the podcast via Patreon for a long time now, and I am so appreciative of it, believe me. So what have I been doing writing-wise this week? I have been finishing off some mentoring. I'm actually putting a hold on my mentoring work for the time being while I get back to focusing really seriously on some writing. As I mentioned last week, I do have an October, end of October deadline for the current book I'm writing. still have quite a few thousand words to write on that, so I'm going to be spending the next kind of seven or eight weeks hunkering down on that. But I do have a Turn Up the Tension course starting in October. So that is starting on October 4. And this is the course that I ran earlier in the year and the people who did it were just so happy with the material, the resources, the inspiration, the guidance that they got from that. It's an, There are eight modules. So the idea is to do it over the course of eight weeks. And then each week we have a Zoom call with all the members of the group. You're also admitted to a closed Facebook group where you can chat to the other group members inspire each other, share ideas, share thoughts on the course, ask questions. And each week I read two lots of 1,000 words. So not everybody's work every week, but I also go through the feedback on those pieces with the whole group. So you get to see my thoughts on how the work could be improved, what's great about it, what needs a little bit more work. And there's a bit of a group discussion about that as well. So there's lots and lots of learning involved in this course. It's called Turn Up the Tension because it's all about increasing the page-turning aspects, if you like, of your novel. But there is so much in the course that is just general writing advice as well about having that great opening that's going to hook your reader, creating snappy dialogue, obviously getting the tension on the page, showing and not telling, getting emotion in, onto the page, having that great character arc. So you can find out more about the course at pamelacook.com.au and you can even sign up there. And it's really easy. You just go on, read all about it, click a button. You can email me via that website if you have any questions about it. And I'm really pleased with the way this course has turned out. It's a culmination of a lot of the teaching work that I've been doing over many years. 
And there are some really great resources which I will be updating as the course goes through and continues to run in the coming months and years. If you are looking for something to tighten your writing, to make sure the novel is page turning, it's really aimed at fiction writers. It will probably help you if you're a non-fiction author as well, if you're writing a memoir or biography, but it is aimed at fiction writers and it is designed to really get the reader engrossed in your story and not being able to put it down. And that's, of course, what we want when we're submitting to agents and publishers as well as getting our work out to readers. So check out Turn Up the Tension course information at pamelacook.com.au and I hope to see some of you on there for the next round starting on October 4. What else have I been doing writing-wise? I have been finishing the tweaks on what I have so far of Out of the Ashes, as I mentioned last week, looking at those turning points. I'm now ready to go full steam ahead with writing and we'll be doing writing sprints each day in the coming weeks. And I'm really excited about getting this book finished and then writing the third, which will also be part of the Blackwater Lake series, but also standalone. So Blackwater Lake is out on audio for anybody who hasn't read that yet and would like to listen to the fabulous narration, which I'm also really pleased with. I didn't do it. Completely separate narration organised by my audio publisher, Belinda. And you can find All We Dream on audiobook as well as, of course, in ebook and print at your favourite online retailer. So that is it for me for this week. Now we are going to go on with the chat with Meredith and Melanie, and it's a really enlightening chat. Meredith is a fabulous interviewer. I love having her as part of the Rights for Women guest host team, and I really hope you enjoy this conversation between Meredith and Melanie. Have a great writing week. Hello, my name is Meredith Jaffe, and I'm delighted to be back again on the Convo Couch at Rights for Women and doing one of my all-time favourite things, which is to interview fellow authors. And today I'm delighted to be spending time with the wonderful Melanie Sayward. Melanie is a Tulma, which is Ipswich-based author and a publishing all-rounder. She grew up in Little Rita, Tasmania, and was dragged kicking and screaming to Brisbane, suburb of Braffin Ridge, when she was 15, which, as you will find out in our conversation, is an important aspect. Melanie has worked in one of the big four publishing houses, has been a freelance editor on books, audiobooks, and literary magazines. She's been a marketing and a publicity person, a researcher, and a sensitivity reader. And on that note, I just want to declare that Melanie was the sensitivity reader on my novel, The Dressmakers of Yarandara Prison. These days, she spends her time teaching university students about the Australian industry at the Queensland University of Technology. Her work has been published in many journals and anthologies, and she's had manuscripts shortlisted for awards such as the David Unipan Award, the Harlequin First Nations Fellowship, Boundless Indigenous Mentorship, and the Penguin Write-In Fellowship. Melanie Saywood, welcome. Thank you for having me. The bio sounds intense, doesn't it? <laughs> it does sound intense. We're going to dive into that a bit later. <laughs> Let's start with the wonderful novel Burn, which is, as we record, about to be released. To set the scene for this conversation, I wanted to start with the central character, Andrew. Who is he and where is he at in his life when the novel opens? So Andrew is a young Indigenous teenager and he, where he's at when his, the novel opens is 
sitting in assembly in a Queensland school, a Brackenridge school, actually, listening to the school principal talking about a big bushfire that's happened just recently. And Andrew believes that he has set this fire. So he's sitting there thinking about whether he's going to get caught or not and whether he's worried about that or not. Exactly. And one of the things that I really liked about the novel is it's told in two timelines. We have Andrew's time in growing up in Tasmania in a place predominantly at Port Sorrel and his time in Year 10 at Bracken Ridge. What did this structure allow you to do with the story? I Look, I will tell you right now, at this point, after going through editing, I will never write a book with a complex storyline like this again, because when I got into editorial, that was really difficult to make it line up. But at the time of writing, I felt like there was no other way that I could do it because I, it, the story is about why do good kids do bad things is like that central premise of the story. And I felt like if you only saw him at 16, potentially there would be a really big struggle for me to get the reader to have these conflicted feelings about him, that he is a good kid and and the things that he's done are quite awful, but there's reasons for why he's done these things. And writing about him as a little boy, I think it starts when he's about eight, and then writing that timeline up to when he left to come to Brisbane allowed me to show the reader all the things that had happened to Andrew as a small child that shaped who he turned into as a teenager. And that's what I wanted the reader thinking about was how we treat children when they're very young and how that can shape how they start to grow as they start to turn into adults and what they need and what they're looking for in their lives. Just before we move on from that point, what was the struggle with the editorial process with the dual timelines? So I've been working on this book, I don't know, sometimes I'm a bit shamed to say that I've been working on it for about 10 years. And the big struggle was that when you're going through this submissions process so many times and trying to work out what works and what doesn't work is that you're really writing things all the time. If I started this 10 years ago and it was set probably around the time that I left Tasmania. So it was, I left Tasmania in 1997 and started writing this in the sort of early 2000s. And so I was writing those sorts of things and that kids didn't have mobile phones and the technology changed very rapidly in that time period. It was really little things like that was working out where things could be and putting mobile phones in kids' hands. And then just because it had been written, rewritten so many times, there were just tiny little details that were important when you're going through the submissions process but become very important when the book's imminently going to be published to be like if Andrew tells his mum when he's eight that he wants to go see a particular movie, it needs to be a movie that would have been out when he was eight. And so like tracing things back like that. The other thing that was really funny was that the school zoning had changed since I'd been there. So when I wrote the book, it was always in my head that Andrew and his mate went to Sandgate High School in Brisbane, which was where I went to high school. 
that when my editor and I checked the zoning for where they lived, and sometimes they'd talk about the streets where they live in Brackenridge, we realized that actually the kids would go to Brackenridge High. And and it made more sense too. It became very confusing to have them in the school that had a different name but was close by. So it was just little things like that. It, it, they didn't seem like big things in the grand scheme of things, but once you started to look at the timeline and where things were and trying to make it a realist piece of fiction that could very well have been taking place in the timeline that's there, we really had to do a lot of extra research. My my poor editor spent a lot of time drawing up the timeline and I love her for that because by the time we got there, I was like, I can't do this anymore. It's one of the trickiest parts of editing, and I think people forget that when they're starting out, that you actually do sit there and go, oh, stuff it. I started off with this, and now it's that. And like you say, having to make sure that the book, the movie, the whatever was actually viable for that, or even the piece of music they're listening to on the radio was actually available at that time. And how much time we all spend diving deep into Google looking for what was the number one hit in Australia at that point in time or whatever yeah. the thing is? <laughs> yeah, where the kids on Snapchat in this time was the big one for me and I had really purposely tried to make it so that they were kids before they'd always have mobile phones in their hands and I couldn't get away with that And in the end. So <laughs> it, I thought it would date me because I wouldn't know what the youths were doing on their phones in the time. <laughs> And God forbid you'd actually have to set up your own Snapchat account to find out. Um, (laughs) You tell the story in first person. I'm always interested in this decision and this one we all consciously make. Usually we do. Did you consciously make that decision to tell the story in first person, number one, and number two, why? Yes, I did. I very much made that decision. It was always first person. This started out as a short story that I wrote when I was an undergrad in uni and this one was in first person. I'd written a suite of short stories actually that were about an interconnected event that Andrew had actually caused and the other stories were about the effect of it from other people's perspectives and sometimes they were in third person or different perspectives but this one it was really important to me number one it was because Andrew's voice was always in my head while I was doing this but the other thing is and I guess it's interesting also when you think about where the publisher's pitching it so they're pitching it as a an adult young adult crossover and certainly a lot of the early reader feedback I've had has pitched it as a YA book just because Andrew is a teenager in the book But one of the reasons why it's in the first person was I'd always intended this book to be an adult book. And I am really fascinated by narratives that have a young person's perspective, but an adult reader can see a wider perspective to what a child or a teenager can. Andrew tells it like he sees it, but there's more going on outside of that. And I really wanted the reader to be like oh Andrew can't see what's happening here or you're behaving in a way that I don't understand but maybe you can see a broader outcome for that yeah so that was why I did it but also just because the simple answer to that is just because he was talking in my head all the time and I think also first person gives you an immediacy with character that even in close third person narrative you don't always get that 
sort of real sense that you're inside someone's head and that the yeah. conflict and struggle that goes on internally in some ways, did you find that easier in first person than you might as if you'd gone for, say, close third person? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not great at third person as well. I think the exposition is heavy when I go into third person. Like I've got to work really hard not to narrate absolutely everything that happens. The other thing that I did just on perspective that was a really conscious choice was that it's in present tense as well, which means that it's as it's unfolding it, that happens and it's the same thing where I love that is what is actually happening right now gives it that sense of immediacy what is exactly happening in his head and also it gives me a chance to make this kid like very he's quite reflective like he thinks I give flashbacks that they usually come in in the space of my my dad once told me this and then he'll tell a story about his dad and then he'll relate that to something that happened to him. So the, it gave me some, in a writerly way, it gave me the space to do those flashbacks and then not do the thing that I'm not good at, which is put heaps and heaps of exposition in. It wasn't there because of the way he was narrating those stories. And on that note too, it also therefore doesn't slow the pace down because it's not a slow novel at all. And even though you are going back and forth in time to Port Sorrel and Brackenridge, everything flows with that, again, that word immediacy, doesn't it? So that it, because we're constantly in Andrew's head, it makes sense that we go back and forth in time. So it gave you that as well, do you think? Yeah, definitely think so. Yeah, and it's interesting because when I sat down to write those seen where he's younger and he's in Port Sorrel, I thought that maybe I would go back into like past tense maybe yeah. and have it so that older Andrew was telling those. And I thought, no, it's much, much more interesting if he doesn't have that, he's only 16, but the wisdom of age, looking back at himself at eight, it's actually much more interesting to make it more immediate that way. So yeah, that's what I thought when I was doing that. Excellent. He's, Andrew spends a lot of time at Brackenridge hanging out with predominantly his two friends, Doug and Trent, who are close friends from primary school before Andrew was accepted into that friendship group. It's an important to the central question of the novel, which one of them, as you touched on just before, which one of them lit the fire at the Brackenridge that ends up with the death of an eight-year-old boy. The thing that I really liked about this was that it gave the novel such wonderful narrative tension because mm. the reader is also asking as the characters are asking who lit the fire who lit the fire the reader is also going I don't know who lit the fire either <laughs> and also especially without any spoilers because of the unexpected answer to this central yeah. question I wondered how that came about was it a conscious thing like I really it's like almost a little mystery within the broader the more important narrative of the story but what were you aiming to do with that? Yeah, that that's interesting, isn't it? I think that what I was trying to do with that was it was more about the friendship, right, that Andrew comes to this place and sometimes I think that Trent and Doug really do want to be Andrew's friends and Andrew is just inherently mistrustful of them and he sometimes he really loves them and other times he 
he does really awful things to them, but I think it's because he's hurting and he sees that he has to, he doesn't have that relationship with his, with them that they've had and stepping into something when you're 15, 16 years old, where these boys have been together since they're in primary school and already has trouble making friends and being understood and these kids are white as well like making your way with white fellas when you're a black fella in a new place and can be really difficult and I also just did want you to not trust any of them as well as you go through reading them and not know whether they're good kids or bad kids they're just kids really yeah so did never see myself as writing a mystery but it did come together that way Uh, towards the end of the writing (laughs) and I also think that the dynamic between Doug and Trent and Andrew and the way that you play those friendships off each other is highly relatable from the point of view that being the third wheel is always problematic in teenage or children's friendships probably but perhaps always in any friendship but also because he is the black fella with these two white guys there's also that element of being an outsider so he's an outsider in Brackenridge he's an outsider mm-hmm. to the friendship group but that but you draw very subtly I must say that sense of I don't belong in this group yeah yeah and I think some of that like when we're talking about it I'm thinking that outsider feeling a lot of this feeling not that I lit fires by the way but a lot of this feeling came from me moving you said in my bio you read the bit about me being kicking and screaming when I was moved to from Tassie into Brisbane and it a lot of these feelings particularly these friendship feelings come from moving from a place where you need your place in friendship dynamics and trying to find your feet and those feelings of isolation and again also I was the only black follower in my group of friends as well when I moved and it was strange because the school that I moved to from moved to in Queensland was a lot more diverse than where I'd come from in Lutcherine in Tasmania but it I still was the only one in my friendship group and yeah so some of those feelings do they're my feelings translated in a different way I just didn't light any fires to act my way out of it I'm so pleased (laughs) to hear that Um, (laughs) it also the other thing with the friendship group that one of the things that underpins that outsiderness and I also again don't want to give too much away one of the things that it also allows you to do is you make it very clear that Andrew has a secret from his friendship group as well that he's desperate for no one to find out and it plays on his mind throughout the narrative and it also allows you to introduce a character called Sarah. Who is Sarah and what does Sarah mean to Andrew? I smiled a lot when you said Sarah because I hope that she resonates with people as well. So Sarah is, she's also a young black fella. She is Andrew's first girlfriend in Tassie and they meet at a camp in Port Sorrel. And she comes from a small town in Tasmania that is run by a church group, actually. And it's one of these former mining towns that became abandoned and then was taken over by a church group. But she's adopted into a white family. So she's a black fellow adopted into a white family. And they're a very religious, Christian, Pentecostal kind of family that is into evangelizing and converting people. 
Um, and they have a summer or a holiday home, a shack, a Tassie shack in Port Sorrel, where Andrew lives. He's the townie, basically. And so he meets her at a party. She's drawn to him. He's drawn to her. And they start hanging out a fair bit. And yeah, she's complicated and special as well. She becomes his partner in crime. She understands him in a way that nobody else seems to and he's quite drawn to that part and I like I just wanted to give him a black fellow who had complicated life who was around his age that he could share something with and that's where she came from but I think she's got a whole story in herself her life is quite difficult negotiating with her parents and what they want for her future and what she wants for her future and so she's acting out as well, as well as Andrew, with how to know where to go without giving spoilers with, with Sarah Hayes. Um, Although I do think it's yeah. important to point out that Sarah, on the surface of things, has a life of privilege that he can yeah. only ever dream of. And I think that's an important yeah. part of the dynamic between the pair. Yeah, that's right. Like she's having a really difficult time, but Andrew has a completely different, difficult time. Like Andrew, Andrew often doesn't have enough to eat and has to scrounge money to look after himself and yeah, secondhand uniforms at school. And mum occasionally doesn't show up to pick him up from school because she's struggling with her own problems. And dad's also struggling with his own problems. This is a novel about intergenerational trauma over everything. And every black fella in this book is struggling with a different sort of effect of intergenerational trauma and and Sarah then has been adopted into this wealthy white family and that he sees that when he goes to dinner with them that there's big juicy steaks on the plate and more food than he could imagine and homemade salads and things like that like this is a kid that gets quite hyper fixated on food a lot of the way through because that's the he I think he recognizes that people who cook for people there's love in that because he gets quite excited later on when his mum he thinks his mum's gonna cook for him again and he starts to think about what she was like when he was younger and thinks, Oh, I'm finally gonna sit down and have a meal and he, they don't and he ends up eating a lot of McDonald's and things like that, trying to get his veggies from a potato or gravy from KFC and that sort of thing. So, yeah, when he's with Sarah, he's really fixated on those things that she has that he doesn't have. And as a little aside, I thought it was quite hilarious that like it kept popping up throughout the novel about barbecues because Sarah's parents have a brand new, mm. I don't know, four burner, blah, blah, blah. Some <laughs> of the rage kind of cooker and his dad's found something at the tip, I think, or yeah. the trading post and it's just and no one can light it because it's got this really tricky, fiddly thing and, yeah. and there's a really funny moment in the story when Dave, the stepfather, is trying to light the dad's barbecue. Yeah. And sitting back going, I can get a show you how to do this. Yeah, because yeah, he hates it. So it's fire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I really like the way that fire, fire, obviously with the title like Burn, fire is central to the novel, but it's also a really important metaphor. And it's a, and a consistent image in the story. It, one of the things that struck me is how often we do hear in the media of stories about teenagers lighting fires that can often get out of control. But you were using fire in much in a much more subtle way than just a story device, were you? Yeah, fire is a 
big part of this story. And funny that you should say that it's often in the news about kids lighting fires because that was one of my sort of central questions was we hear it on the news and you can't possibly get away from the fact that even little kids will know that if you don't play with matches and you don't do things with fire and it can get out of control very easy. But we're, I wanted to know why in bushfire season, why kids are out playing with fire and what they're thinking about when that happens. That was where I started with it. But as a black fella, fire is important to caring for country and regeneration. And obviously we've heard a lot of talk about handing fire management, land management back through fire to mob in bushfire areas in particular. And so it was something that was really key in my head that I was thinking about while I was doing this. And also a lot of people go, oh, why would a young Indigenous kid light fires? We know that you, like, we're taught how to read the land and when to light fires. And I was like, I don't know how to light a fire. I wasn't brought up in culture and I wasn't brought up in culture because of our intergenerational trauma and our family story. So I was thinking there's a a real, there's a human nature to be quite drawn to fire sometimes or very terrified of fire. And I like the idea of him being very drawn to the fire and knowing that it's powerful because his body and his spirit kind of knows that there's something very powerful in that fire. And he does get rewarded for lighting the fires in the start. And so he does associate fire with a way of getting some power, power back. But yeah, it was It's a big thing and I really had to think about it. I think I'm a little bit afraid. I don't want to hurt, upset, trigger so many people that have been through bushfires and terrible fires. And it was a big high consideration of mine in in writing a character that we ultimately want to sympathise with and the way he sets fires. So yeah, I've thought a lot about, I've thought a lot about fire in the last few years. Yeah. yeah. I actually am in one of those areas that was devastated mm. by fire. And I know that our local elders are having a big education process with, with the regional people about mm. how we can mitigate these. I wanted to just talk about Andrew again in terms of that another lovely piece of tension you talk about. You write really well about the physicality of his feelings around fire, but also at the same time, his, his emotional reaction to fire, he refers a lot to a psychologist that he saw when he was still in Tasmania and who, Mm. and he constantly says, Dr. Harrington says, I'm not a fire bug. And that's a really important understanding for Andrew too, isn't it? Even though he might not know why. But he also is trying to define what he's not, if you use mm. the word. Yeah, he, yeah, and I think he's confused too. I actually did a lot of research about pyromania and what makes a pyromaniac. And I didn't ever want Andrew to, to be that way. And I think that, like, as with all mental disorders, it, there's, things that happen that I, you're either inherently there or it was triggered by something. And I just, I wanted Andrews to be about something else. So I did a lot of research on why children light fires and continue to light them. And, and it was often a sign of parental neglect and attention seeking. 
And and so that was where Dr. Harrington kept saying to him, oh, you're not a firebug because he was saying it's not like a clinical thing, but actually it is also a behavior that has has a root cause. And I think sometimes that's a place where an adult reader might be able to see a bit more broadly than what Andrew can see. But he just doesn't want to be associated with negative things. He wants to be a good kid, right? And so I think he's associating pyromania with a negative association and he's saying but I'm doing this because the first time I lit a fire my dad came back to me and my dad paid attention to me in a way that he had stopped doing so and so that he sees that power in fire I don't know if I've answered your question properly I think um, so but it's leading really nicely into my next question so thank you for that (laughs) I want to talk about Andrew's parents it's it's in critical element of the story, the relationship or lack thereof that Andrew has with his parents. It's not pretty. Can you describe a little bit about the family dynamic for Andrew? Yeah. So his mum is suffering from depression and Andrew doesn't know why. And this again, one of those subtle things, you you will find out some of the triggers for Linda's depression as you read on. But again, I'm not going to talk about why and where that came from because that'll end up being a spoiler. But yeah, Lin- Linda suffers from depression. So she she comes across as a neglectful mum a lot of the time. And a lot of the time it will maybe be quite mad at Linda for the way she dismisses Andrew. But I'm very fond of Linda. This book, I talked about how this was always an adult book. This was actually Linda's story originally told through Andrew's eyes. It's it's about the effects of parents' trauma on, on their children. And so I was very fond of that. And right up until the very last draft, Linda actually had, she was the third viewpoint character in the book but we decided to take it out towards the end of that and a good move to it too because I actually think it gave Linda a lot of her power back yeah so I'm really fond of Linda and her story she really struggles to pay attention to Andrew she's very disappointed with Andrew when he does things she sets a lot of rules for him in terms of coming and going from the house to try and control him and Andrew's dad is he looms larger than life over the story and it's funny he's present but not present a lot of the way through and that was really important to me that Andrew idolizes his dad and he just wants his dad around and his dad is working in an economy where the black fella's always the first one to go so he's in like quite like factory work jobs where and Tasmania in the time that I was setting I was thinking he worked around the pulp mill in Burnie a lot of people got let go when the pulp mill closed down lots of industrial workplaces shutting down and or downsizing and racism the black fella is always the first one to go it doesn't matter whether they're great at their jobs they're usually the most expendable in the workforce so they move around a lot while dad chases the work to support the family and linda can't work because of this depression that she's got and so it gets too much for dad towards the sort of middle of the book and he disappears and everything Andrew does is to try and get his dad back. He doesn't care for his mum, which is very sad. But mum put herself in that position 
and mum also has a boyfriend when they by the time they get to into Queensland she they go to Queensland because she is chasing this white fellow who's quite racist and they live in Dave's house as well which also makes it really difficult for Andrew because she's paying more attention to the boyfriend and her depression she's dealing with that self-medicating with alcohol as well she's a sad character but I I adore her and I hope readers will find some redemption for Linda as they go through I think what's interesting is that particularly in the ports so I've been saying port sorrel so thanks for that oh, port sorrel <laughs> is in the in, particularly in those sections of the book she is neglectful. She's often absent. She's often down the pub, as you say, self-medicating with alcohol. And because Andrew is eight and on onwards, he can only see that in black and white because he doesn't have any of the nuance, let alone the family story. And I think what's really interesting is how, as the novel reaches its climax and the resolution, that I think you do a really deft job of reversing the negativity that as a, or the antipathy as a reader, perhaps yeah. as a mother, that you mm. feel towards Linda's parenting. There's yeah. some really beautifully wrenching moments in yeah. her story as well. I just, obviously, you've touched on it a couple of times in the conversation. The genesis of the dysfunctionality and what's made his parents who they are, you don't resolve that until the last few pages mm. of the book. And as you've said, a burn is ultimately a story about the manifestation of intergenerational trauma. I guess it's an obvious question, but why in particular did you want to write about intergenerational trauma? Yeah, it's a maybe obvious question, but it's also a really big question too, yeah. right? Because I think current discourse, all discourse, I think, about mob and those stereotypical perceptions of us blackfellas sometimes comes from people not having a really good understanding of how far-reaching this trauma can be and how multifaceted it can be as well. And it, it, it comes from understanding as as an adult now with a really good relationship with my parents for example understanding your parents are human beings too they're not just mum and dad and unfailing and that they come with their own complications and my grandparents come with their own complications and those things that pass down and that you start to see and the other thing that it came from was, I'm going to talk about this all the time, so if people hear me speaking about it, I, I really encourage you to look it up. Melissa Lukashenko, who I'm sure most listeners will know of, that she is my one of my all-time favourite writers, she talks about, in the speech that she did to the First Nations Australia Writers Network Summit in, I think it was 2017 or 2018, and she did a keynote speech and it was subsequently published in The Engine. And, and it's about writing as a sovereign act. So writing from every black fella being an act of asserting our sovereignty and our place in the world. And that it's being a chance to rest back the stories that are told about us and tell our own stories and all of her characters she strives to give them beauty humor truth land 
She wants them to be beautiful. She wants them to be funny. So we come with all these complications, but at the same time, we are a multifaceted person, right? We're not just our, our trauma and those sorts of things. It was resting back that. And, and I think that hopefully people are ready to start to read about how trauma is passed down and how, yeah, okay, some things are a lot better these days. I'm in my 40s. If I'm still dealing with my own trauma, then my niece and nephew, who are the next generation, they have to deal with my trauma, my sister's trauma, our nan's trauma, those sorts of things as well, and also make their own way in the world. So it's, it's about showing how we pass on our traumas to our kids and then they deal with them in different ways. Yeah, so complicated. but Very complicated. <laughs> But on the flip side of that, where you show what happens, again, we're trying not to give too much away, is showing how hope, yeah. can, be hope can be rekindled and via, in, in this case, particularly via the importance of being on country and connection to mob, the connection to Andrew's family. Because one of the things yeah. you say a couple of times in the novel is that when people ask him, who's your mob, who's your mob, he says, I don't know. I have no idea who my mm. people are. Mm. I, I, again, I can guess why you're writing about this, but can we just talk a little bit about why it's important to be on country and to know who your people are? Yeah, so all of this trauma I have come to realise comes from our disconnect from what is fundamental to everything to us, which is country. And I don't mean going outside and putting your feet on the grass, although I do have a lovely elder, Annie Barb Nicholson, who tells you tells me that when you go to a new place to take your shoes off and put your feet on the ground and introduce yourself, and that's a really good practice. And I don't necessarily mean that. The fundamental understanding that country is everywhere and everything. It is the, yes, it is the ground beneath our feet, but it is the trees, the birds, the animals the sky up to the stars, down to the depths of the ocean. This is country. She is alive and living and and is speaking to us all the time. And when you're disconnected from that voice, you can't hear what's being told to you and you can't read what's coming. And that can be subtle as I don't know how to look at the land and know that it's going to be a big wet season this year and it can be more esoteric and spiritual to be like what is it doing guiding you there um and so yeah it was really important and again taking in melissa's principles from that speech that that going back on land gave all of those characters that beauty that humor back again and when they come into it yeah and so so andrew learning what's destructive and what's nurturing as well and learning to listen to country because I believe that country is speaking to him all the way through this book, particularly through the fire, that he doesn't understand how to connect that until towards the end of the book and that in that understanding, maybe his parents also start to understand as well and you get the sense that there might be some redemption there. So I guess that's the really important thing was that it's the super fictional ending and people will understand when they read that and there's an author's note that sort of explains 
why I've done what I've done. And I'm really not going to talk too much about that because of the spoilers and the impact I think the end has. But that to know that even though we spent our time today talking about how this is about intergenerational trauma, it's about heavy things, it's about bushfires and death and destruction and neglectful parents and depression and pyromania and juvenile justice, this is ultimately a book of hope and, and something that shows like the beauty of our people. So that's where I'm going with it. Hopefully. And can I add perhaps healing? Hope is yeah. great. Of course it's important, but I think the healing that really gives the story its oomph at the end mm. is that sense mm. that there is, that they will heal. I think yeah. that's a really powerful message that bringing all these elements together creates yeah. the right environment for healing. Yeah, yeah. And because I don't want you to fall in love with Andrew and then be like, oh, now all I can imagine for him is a bleak future. I, I really hope that it gives the sense to readers that there's hope not just for this little character to live his life off the page, but for all kids that are troubled and going through something. Kids, I do want to add that kids, the mob, Indigenous kids, particularly living in Queensland where we have some of the toughest youth justice penalties, all those babies, they are babies in prisons. My heart is on those kids and I think answers for how to stop kids mucking up and being locked up is to hand it back to Mol and, and that's been on my heart while I've been writing this book the ho- whole time so I hope that also comes through that I just I want people to be moved to understand that the, these laws are unjust and that babies should not be in jail my my titter Melanie Mananga has a poem about crayons not belonging in prison and that Im- image is very strong in my mind I think it, yeah kids don't belong yes kids don't belong in prison I think you make the message loud and very clear and more importantly I think because we're talking about novel writing I think it's very emotional as well for mm. for the reader I think you beautifully I want to talk about the development of this manuscript as you said, it's, it started as a story as part of your final year project for your creative writing degree, your undergraduate degree. Yes, what was the impetus for you deciding to develop it into a longer form, into the novel form? Uh, it was that I got better grades on that story than I did on the other ones. That's very pragmatic of you. Yeah, that pragmatic. <laughs> but, but it was also because I just couldn't let Andrew go. And I showed it to a few people after I graduated. I did a few things like I, I was able to sit down towards the end of my degree and have a bit of a yarn with Anita Hikes. I don't know if she'll remember that. Now I had a bit of a yarn and she was like, yeah, there, I think there might be a novel in this, eh? And I started thinking about that. And then I did it. Brisbane Writers Festival, I don't know if they still do it, but they used to do a session called 20 Pages in 20 Minutes. And it was a selective program where you'd send in 20 pages and an application and a few people over the course of the festival would get a one-on-one appointment with someone who'd worked in publishing. I even remember who the lovely woman was. She was from the UK that I sat down with who I just gave her the short story to read and she went, yeah. And my question was, is there a novel in this? And she was like, there is absolutely a novel in this story. So I guess I went away and thought about it. And I, the first draft, I knocked out 
in my first year out of uni in November, I did NaNoWriMo and I wrote 50,000 words and smashed out something there where I started to imagine the story was a bit longer and then started to develop it for the next couple of years because NaNo is 50,000 words. That's not really a novel length. It's not quite there. I aim to make it 70. I think it stayed around 70. I think it's quite close to 80 now and just adding in bits and taking bits out and developing it over the time that I'd had it submitted to a few places. Mm. One of the things that did surprise me in my research was that Somewhere I read, so if it's wrong, please correct me, but somewhere you wrote somewhere, I believe, that Byrne was found in the submissions pile at a firm who was your publisher. It surprised me because I believe a version of Byrne was twice shortlisted for the David Unipin Award and once for the Bamless yeah. Indigenous Writers Fellowship. So how on earth did it end up in a submissions pile? <laughs> wow, that's a great story. My favorite story. I've been on the grind for a little bit and I was working the second time I submitted it to the Unipen, I was also in my PhD, which is totally different to this. And it's commercial fiction, my PhD novel. And so I got shortlisted for the Unipen the second time and didn't win and didn't have any bites from UQP and was while that because they have first right of refusal for shortlisted books. So when the shortlisted time had lapsed, I got on a Zoom call with my friend Alex Adset, who's an agent, and we were good mates. And I said, can I just please have a yarn with you about what do I do now? Because worked in publishing I've been freelance editing I've written I've done my I did a research master's and wrote a manuscript I did was in my PhD doing a manuscript I had lots of short things published and I felt like I'd been emerging for a long time and it was time that I held a book of mine in my hand and felt like I was a little bit more emerged and so I got on the phone with Alex and I went I'm so frustrated I don't know what to do help and we talked a lot about burn and the subject matter and we decided that what I was going to do was put it in the drawer again and work concentrate on my PhD and that Alex would pick me up probably pick me up as an agent for my PhD novel and shop that around and then we'd take burn as a second book because we thought maybe it was going to be too difficult subject matter to get out as a first book. Publishers a bit funny about these things. Sometimes writing a book about trauma is maybe not the ideal first book. Who knows? Yeah, so that's what we did. And so then I went up to my parents' place. They live in Harvey Bay on Butchler Country. And I was relaxed and happy and I was on my Instagram and I saw a firm put out a their open call, which they do on the first Monday of every month. So people wanting to, to submit work, absolutely do it. They put the call out. They have a website that tells you exactly what to submit. And I have my submission package. So I thought, I know Alex told me to put this in the drawer and concentrate on my PhD, but if I submit it, 
that's like a proverbial draw, right? Let's sit on a slash bra. It'll take ages for it to come through. So yeah, that's what I did. I sent it off and I made a really stupid little TikTok video about how I wasn't going to do it and I'm going to do it. And then I sent it off and that was it. And I forgot about it. And then a couple of months later, I got a request for the full manuscript. And I still didn't get excited about it because, to be honest with you, I've been through this process a lot. Not, I hadn't just been shortlisted. It had been taken to acquisitions that two of the big fours actually really early on in a really bad early draft of it had been. And so I had gone this far before and went, nothing's, don't get too excited. They just want to read the whole thing. And then they came back to me after Christmas and this is my editor, Armel Danes, came back and said, oh, hi, Mel, thanks so much for sending it through. Sorry, it's been a long time. Look, here's some feedback. Our publishers looked at it. Kelly Dowst, who is now my publisher, had looked at it. We really love it. We think it needs development in these areas. And it was in terms of making it a little bit more commercial, which is what I think it is now. And it was about really focusing on that hopefulness that we've spoken about. And that had made me stop and pause because over the time that they'd been reading the manuscripts, which over the summer, Christmas period, I had been really thinking on Melissa's words about this hope and joy and connect to country and maybe feeling a little bit guilty because this book was not a happy ending originally. <laughs> it did not have hope in it. And so I'd been thinking about that. And so just getting, it was like two paragraphs of suggestions from a publisher lit me with fire again. And I hadn't had that much feedback in all the time that I've been writing it since those initial people had told me to pursue it as a novel. Because when you get shortlisted, and judges give you some feedback, but it's not usually on what you can improve. It's usually the encouraging, we loved this part about it. And I was hungry for feedback and terrified that I was going to change what was good about it if I kept tinkering with it as well. And so I just wrote this email back to one male going, you know what, you are absolutely right. This is exactly what I've been thinking. Thank you so much because Publishers do not have an obligation to give you any feedback, a paragraph or not, because they have no financial bet on you when they're looking at your work. They haven't invested any money into you. They've just invested their time, which is very valuable. So I just went back and said, thank you so much. This is amazing. I'm going to keep working on this. I hope that you'll like to see it again in the future. And then maybe three days later, I got an email going, oh, hey, can you Zoom with me and Kelly? in a couple of days. And I went, yeah, of course I can. And I thought, say, we're going to just give me more detailed feedback. But apparently the answer that I'd given them was the right answer because I got on this Zoom call and Kelly and Armel were there and they went, just wait one second. Martin's coming on. Martin's the one of the directors of a firm. And I, my insides were like, oh my God, they're going to make an offer. They didn't get the publishing director on the Zoom. Oh my God, they're going to make an offer. This is not a feedback call. Yeah, so that's how it happened. I got off the Zoom and I pushed my computer lid down and I like rolled around the floor and cried because it was just so long and having them understand what I wanted, but then also being able to give the feedback, like they understand what I wanted you to know about Andrew straight away, but then had given me this solid feedback that had made me go, oh my God, this is the answer to this book which is what you should get from your publisher, right? You should be able to 
has those discussions that help lead you in the right direction for what is ultimately your work. So yeah, it was that the great big long story, but oh, I I'm so yes, glad I asked the question. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's and it's just it's my utter joy, right? Because we talk a lot about and I've I, I teach at QUT and I tell my students all the time that it's about the right timing and the right people and oftentimes particularly now like I've got the book here I'm holding it in my hand and I think about what this book would have looked like if the first publisher who took it to acquisitions had taken it and what it looks like now and that was not the right time and it wasn't the right publisher this is the right time this is the right publisher this says what I wanted to say I really don't think that in 10 years time I'll look back and go oh I should have done that with Ben but if I'd published 10 years ago when I first sent, started sending this out, I don't think the book would have been what it is now. And there's two take-homes from that story that, that you said that I think are really important for anyone listening in who is at the other end of not quite yet published. One is that publishers, as you say, are very busy people, but they give you your time to even bother to say, this is what, where the novel needs work. Mm. Listen carefully. You don't have mm. to agree with them, but... More often than not, and my experience is very similar to yours, they often hit pay dirt because they're seeing this stuff all the time. They can yes. see where your book sits in a market in a way that you can't see. And they want to know that you're an author they can work with. Having a hissy fit and going, but it's my work or, or yeah. resisting, resisting good advice is a surefire way to never be published. And I think the other thing that's really important about that story is persistence and resilience as a creative that you've just been through such a journey with this book and it's not that unusual a story that first novel can be the hardest one in the world to ever get published I think people really need to think about if you're prepared to give up because you don't like the feedback or you don't get any feedback then you probably shouldn't be in this business at all it's a persistence game hey like i think and i i I cried over why isn't my book published what's wrong with it i've had many tears over it but I, i guess the thing that i took from it and i think this is my also my advice from anyone is that if you do get feedback from a publisher or shortlisted for a prize or Get a fellowship to do a residential fellowship. That should be a boost for you as well. And the attitude that I had after I cried a million tears the first time I got rejected at an acquisitions meeting and I sobbed and sobbed because I thought I'd done it. I thought that getting to acquisitions was a shoo-in. And I sobbed and I went, actually, the message that I take from this is not if I get published, it's when I get published. And I have known since that day that one day I'd hold my book in my hands. And and I hope that other people will hear this and take that on too. It's a, it can be a slow game. It's rewarding. It's so bloody good to hold that book in your hands. Sure is. And it's a slow game and it's also you've got to do the work. Yeah. There's no escaping the fact that the rewriting and the rewriting is what makes the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that feedback, exactly as you said before, listen to that feedback because people are taking the time to give you feedback and they've seen something in it that's worthwhile. And, yeah, you don't have to listen to it. Do what's right for your story, but might not be right time for your yeah. book. Yeah. I want to go to an area that you work in 
And as I said in my introductions, you and I have worked together on Dressmakers of Yarra and Darren Prison. For those of you who haven't read it, there is a major character in that novel who is Indigenous, Joey. And the publisher, quite rightly, even though it racked me with nerves, I've got to tell you, <laughs> that, I, that it needed a sensitivity read. And I'm so grateful that it had a sensitivity read. But I wanted to just start with fundamentals. Can you please define what is a sensitivity read and what does it involve? So a sensitivity reader is usually someone who belongs to a particular marginalised group and there are a lot of sensitivity readers across a lot of different areas these days. Sometimes I sensitivity read for LGBTQIA plus as well, but the most obvious thing for me to sensitivity read is Aboriginal characters. And they usually belong to that marginalised group and have some editorial background as well. And they will read through looking for things that could be potentially problematic or offensive or inadvertently racist. And they always take on that it's unintentional. The, every book that I've ever read for this has made a really solid attempt. But just if you're not living in that community and it's not your experience, sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to unlearn things that, that that are pushed onto society. Honestly, Meredith, I'm not a huge fan of doing them. I don't do them a lot anymore. I'm really particular about who and what I can take on as a black fella taking on things. I definitely don't take things that are outside of an experience I feel like I'm comfortable looking at. For example, I've been asked to do one for a biography of someone who belonged to a mob that was not mine. Totally inappropriate for me to do those sorts of things. If you're looking for a sensitivity reader, I'd be really cautious of ones that said that they could take on absolutely anything because there are really strong considerations to make. Lovely Joey and dressmakers was I was quite happy to take on Joey because of the character that you'd written, the research that you'd done, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he didn't talk about who his mobs were in the book did they very generally he just basically yeah. said oh i imagine him coming from bunjalong country but like, yeah, he just yeah, refers yeah. to it as north coast yeah he doesn't actually spell it that's out that's right yeah and because of where he was in in the prison and what his story was i was really comfortable on taking that on and it was one of my nicest experiences because we actually were able to enter into a dialogue which is what it needs to be I think if you're on the other side of that like you say you can be quite afraid of going into that process but I think being afraid is good because it means you don't want to upset anybody I think it's quite natural to feel that way but also to not feel attacked when feedback comes back and you never were like that didn't talk directly we were straight through the editor but but I got a lot of lovely feelings because we entered into discussions about things where you would say, oh, could I do this? And I went, you can, but this is maybe the connotation that comes through. And we had a discussion about that. It, it can be quite confronting. And so while I have the chance to talk about it, it's not always nice to be named in acknowledgements. Again, I was in yours, I know, and I'm very proud of having worked on your book, but sometimes it, get, it gives you the sense that you're being named an acknowledgement so that if a mistake was made, someone, a publisher can go, oh, but we had Mel say would read that. And that's really frightening for me because I'm accountable to my elders in my community. It's very particular ones that you're happy to be named in in and directly said that your sensitivity read. It's, it's something to 
think about whether you're looking for someone to put the blame onto or whether you're actually looking for someone to work with as an editor and obviously Meredith we worked together and and it was in that editorial kind of vein so you might find that people might start saying no it's a, it's an interesting place like I talk to my students about it often at first glance it feels like it's the answer to being able to really cover the breadth of experience in this country or other countries, multiculturalism in Australia is a very diverse country, lots of different experiences, and employing a sensitivity reader can be like the answer to making sure that things aren't problematic. And I think that's really dangerous to think it's the be-all, end-all, but I also am really refreshed by the number of publishers that are thinking this way now but I will say that my thoughts on what the actual answer is much more diversity in the ranks of publishing from top to bottom not just in editorial assistance and entry-level positions I think if we're going to see real shift and real answers to how do I incorporate an Indigenous character or how do I incorporate a queer character when I don't belong to that group is going to be having more people in-house because the knowledge will just flow from having more people in-house as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I also think that one of the things I've noticed is that publishers have become a little bit gun-shy about if you're, a, in my case, a straight white woman of a certain vintage, that doesn't mean that my universe or my story universe, because we are in a multicultural country, isn't populated mm. by people from many diverse backgrounds. And it is interesting. I've some, sometimes noticed some real pushback from editorial about, well, is can you write a gay female character, for instance, when you're a straight white woman? And you start to go, and I've had other friends say, can you have this Indian character in your novel if you're a straight white woman. Mm. And I think that's also mm. a little bit dangerous. We want to, we want us as a culture, we do need our stories to reflect the, the yeah, Australia yeah. that we all know. Mm-hmm. But I think that the onus is definitely on the writer, as you've pointed out, to do your research. So people that want to write Aboriginal characters in particular, for my students, I always get them to go back and read about Lionel Shriver coming to the Brisbane Writers Festival in 2016 and the way she talks about not stifling her creativity and imagination because fiction is for a writer to imagine worlds outside their own, which I, in some ways I agree with, but the the subsequent articles that came out, so you need to understand what happened there and then go to the subsequent articles. Annie Alexis Wright wrote about what to think about when you're writing Indigenous characters and why you really need to think about it. And also Janine Liane has written about it as well. So I think Alexis's might be in Mianjin and Janine's is in Overland. They're available online free to read. They're essential reading for my students when we talk about considering this. But Janine in particular has a paragraph towards the end of this piece that talks about questions to ask yourself why do you want to write about an aboriginal character what's your experience of interacting with aboriginal people if there's not an aboriginal person in your friend group then why do you need to represent that that sort of thing if you have absolutely no interaction with indigenous people then how can you possibly even begin to imagine life and then at the same time i have one black friend is also not a good enough reason to say i want to 
write it. There's a lot of consideration to put into that. There are also for authors, Australia Council guidelines that Terry Janke and a lot of people have come up with about these sorts of considerations. If this is where you're going and totally, I'm really sick of just seeing white people write white people all the time. (laughs) And if this is what you want to do and you do want to represent the full breadth of identities in our country, then interact with people, do your research and think about it from your first draft as well. So reading a lot of submissions for competitions and prizes and fellowships at the moment, it's a big part of my freelancing work. And oftentimes people will say, I'm going to engage a sensitivity reader They've already written a draft. They're already applying for things and say they want to engage someone. And I'm like, late because in my opinion, when you've already written a draft, you're very attached to it, right? So if someone comes in and says to you, Meredith, this story that you've written is great, but like you can't do this and you can't do that and it ends up being something really central to it, then potentially you're going to push back or feel quite protective about it. And that's where you get into trouble. So if you start with the research, then it becomes more organic in the process anyway. That's what I think anyway. Excellent, excellent advice and an excellent answer. Just to return to burn now, because I'm sure we could do an entire podcast on this issue. Oh, my God, we could totally. Oh, we totally could. Now, look, by the time this goes to air, burn will be out in the world. And I just wondered, what are your hopes and dreams for burn as a novel? I feel like it's a hard moment for any of us when we actually, it's great to hold it in our hands, yes, but it can be quite nerve-wracking to have the book go out and to see what feedback the readership will think. What's going on in your mind at the moment about the pre-release jitters, as it were? So I I hope that my elders are proud and like it, that they're the first people that I think about. I think, I hope that I've represented our people with truth and honesty and joy and love and those sorts of things. So that's really important to me. I hope that it will make readers think and also think about acting as well. I hope that there's like actual act on that. Like on a totally selfish note, what's going through my head is that I'm absolutely terrified of racist comments and reviews and things that miss the point. I'm really terrified of that. I used to be a librarian on Goodreads and I deleted myself off of Goodreads because it just, I can't, I just decided really early on after hearing from some other authors that I can't subject myself to that readers' opinions are not for me anyway, but but I am also really quite terrified that reader opinion will be race-based rather than story-based. So yeah, I've deleted myself off of those platforms and also quite terrified of being tagged on Instagram in negative reviews. Does that happen to you? <laughs> yeah, I'm not really. And I'm also a little bit surprised that it didn't. But I've also yeah. decided I've actually deleted my Goodreads account full stop because I just, yeah, it's, I it's not, a, it's not a very, yeah. it's not a useful platform, shall we say? No, no, not for the author. I don't think it is. I, I still use, I love the story graph. I don't know if people know about that. It's, well, it, it's a woman of color started it and it, it effectively does the same thing as Goodreads, but it's not owned by a big multinational. It's owned by the woman, who, the people who developed it, the, the people of color at the helm of it. And it has the most amazing stats on it. It can break down 
how many romance books you read and how many memoirs you read in a year. And they give you a little a wrap at the end, like the Spotify wrap that you get at the end of the year. So I'm on there, but I also have plans that I'm just on there to track my reading and I absolutely will not be looking at reviews and things on there because I need to protect my own mental health. Eh? It, it adds a whole other, another layer. To, we all hate or fear negative reviews. Yeah. I think oh no, it, it is an important point to make that there's a whole extra dimension for an Indigenous writer that might invite a backlash that isn't deserved ever. But, yeah. uh, and it's just, I always worry anyway about anyone who thinks it's worthwhile to post a negative review about a book that they didn't enjoy if they're not being paid to write said review because it's mm. far better mm. to start books of oxygen, as it were. I, that's, that was always my ethos when I was a literary editor. If you hate the book, don't talk about it and focus yeah. on the books that bring joy. Mm. And it, I just find it very difficult that whoever's book it is, that people would waste time and energy sprouting vitriol but then I'm not on Twitter anymore either for this no kind of reasons it's like people play nice or just go home yeah yeah and I'm not saying I can't take criticism but I want to take criticism like I'd love to read literary criticism yeah Yeah. and as someone who's just on my PhD and it and reading things with that close critical lens but that's like on an academic level right? and that sort of thing but yeah just the the personal attacks I think yeah. also even though I have like quite an active Instagram and on online life I'm quite a private guarded person and and so coming out into not that it's super public but just having any sort of public facing life gets a bit nerve-wracking and I don't want the responsibility of representing all Aboriginal people because we are all so different. Absolutely. (laughs) Oh, Mel, it's been so lovely chatting with you today. We've certainly covered so much territory. I only wish the best of joy for you with Burn. It's a wonderful book. I totally enjoyed every moment I spent with Andrew and all the characters and I hope it just absolutely flies. And I thank you so much for spending time coming out of the shell on the publicity tour to spend time on the convo couch today with rights for women and I just love the fact that the burn doesn't shy away from any of the rawness of Andrew's experiences and yet it's a novel of enormous heart it's been a real pleasure talking to you today about your writing the book the world of publishing if you'd like to find out more about Mel, you can find her at Little Red Rights, which is www.littleredrights, or and she also goes by that handle on Instagram. And remember, everybody, we play nice. <laughs> Burn is available. <laughs> Burn is available, of course, on from the August the 29th. Burn is available at your local library and your favourite bookstores. So please go out and support yet another wonderful Australian writer, Mel Saywood. Thank you so much. Thank you, Meredith. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at w for podcast 
The Facebook page Rights for Women. Find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>